millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Thursday, January 17th, I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear what an advisory committee recommends legislators do to cut costs and improve the health of Mississippians. I don't know how I could look citizens in the face and say I'm not trying. Then a new survey shows Mississippians think education should be a bigger priority. Find out more. Plus, we've got the details on a new partnership providing assistance to low-income students to help them obtain college scholarships. And in our book club, a conversation with Janice S. Ellis on her book, From Liberty to Magnolia, In Search of the American Dream. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Medicaid Care Advisory Committee is sharing its report with lawmakers to inform plans for the 2019 legislative session and beyond. They're charged with helping the state division of Medicaid reduce costs and improve health outcomes in Mississippi. They say there are several issues that would help. One is to reduce premature birth by using a hormone called 17P to provide bariatric surgery and to increase the cigarette tax to $1.50. Dr. Steve Demetrupo is chair of the committee. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier what's next. We continue to meet. We're going to work on our projects. We're going to really try to push this thing with the long-acting birth control, try to really work on improving that. Um, We're going to continue to monitor our usage of the hormone 17P. We're going to try to look at other ways that we can use preventive health to reduce cost. And so we've got a survey out now looking at all the other states in the nation to see what their best practices are and what's worked best for them. And now we're going to receive a report about that at our next meeting. Is this initiative across the board with Medicaid or is it for the managed care portion? It's across the board. So the division of Medicaid is responsible for the way for oversight of the managed care organization. So what Medicaid pushes out, you know, they're responsible in, in managed care as well. And they act as, I want to say, a partnership together, but that's really, they oversee that work. And the managed care organizations do have their own autonomy in a lot of different areas, but Medicaid looks at every one of their processes. Medicaid Advisory Committee Chair Dr. Steve Demetropoulos. Senate Republican Bryce Wiggins of Pascagoula chairs the Medicaid Committee. He shares his thoughts with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Well, I think it was made clear in the meeting that Medicaid is a very complicated uh, issue area that, uh, and for the people that are simply out there stating, oh, let's expand Medicaid, there's more to it than just that. There, uh, as you saw in here, they're, you know, compared to other states, doctor, what I, a big thing I got out, which I was not expecting, was uh, doctor shortage. I mean, we're paying our doctors well through Medicaid. We need more doctors. We've known that. Uh, as Senator Bryan said, apparently Arkansas, for whatever reason, doesn't have the same issue. So why don't we look at that? Um, uh, also, what I was hoping to get out of it, which I think we got, which was how much work this committee's been putting in 
that you heard from Dr. Dean Metropolis that um, the relationships with the Division of Medicaid are much better uh, and you're seeing results. Uh, we heard that, as I mentioned today, um, you know, there's no budget deficit, no deficit request from the Division of Medicaid. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the enrollment is down. Um, we have health issues. You heard about the uh, things that we can accomplish, uh, which is, uh, you know, ending smoking or at least uh, reducing that, which is, as Dr. Dimitrov said, one of the biggest factors within our control that, that we can address. And you brought up a bill last year that failed, but you wanted to increase the uh, cigarette tax. Are you going to try again? Uh, uh, certainly after hearing this, <laughs> uh, I think I don't know how I could look citizens in the face and say I'm not trying because as was shown here, as the Department of Health came in and said, uh, you want to reduce, uh, you want to improve health and reduce costs, that's what you do. And what came out of this, 33% of your Medicaid beneficiaries are smokers. And so what that means is the people who are getting care or being paid or being, their cares being reimbursed by the state, are continuing to smoke. And, you know, as I pointed out, in the private sector, there's incentives for that, such as uh, increased premiums. Well, that's what this, that's what this proposal is that, that he was talking about. Um, so how can, we, how can we ignore that? I mean, I think this has been a thorough, in-depth presentation, and I appreciate it. And, by the way, not done by the uh, legislators ourselves, done by citizens from across Mississippi. But this report and this stuff is for continuing on and, and advising the legislature, advising the Division of Medicaid, and, you know, to be proactive about how we can, re you know, reduce costs, but also, you know, improve the health outcomes that we've, and I think you're starting to see that. He mentioned about the 17P, about reducing premature births and all that. Senator Bryce Wiggins, legislative Democrats are still pushing for Medicaid expansion in Mississippi in spite of consistent Republican opposition to the idea. House Democrat Jarvis Dorch of Jackson spoke with our Desiree Frazier during a Democratic caucus meeting yesterday. He says most Mississippians are not against a Medicaid expansion. We're trying to put forward um, different solutions to Medicaid expansion. Uh, we think we can do something that's specific to Mississippi that um, isn't just cookie cutter or just copying what some other state has done. We think we can, you know, take the resources that are available to us from the federal government and invest in our local providers, our hospitals, community health centers, and uh, provide better coordinated care for, for the working poor in our state. How are you going to push this forward when there's resistance from the governor and uh, many uh, Republicans? I think at some point reality starts to sit in. Um, it's clear the Affordable Care Act isn't going anywhere. It's still a lot of land. It's clear that our hospitals are suffering, and it's clear that we have hundreds of thousands of people in our state that don't have health insurance. Um, at some point, you know, reality has to hit politicians, and it can't just be about politics. Um, you can't just, you know, slam on the table that I'm against Obamacare and, and think that solves all these problems. At some point, the voters are going to want or demand that we have people at the legislature that actually act on some of these issues. You talked about a poll that said 60% of Mississippians or more than 60% want the expansion? Yeah, so Medicaid expansion isn't something that's unpopular. It's, it's, a, um, it's an idea that Mississippians have, you know, come to understand is vital to the, um, 
vital to the economics of the state, to the health of the state. Um, it, it's something that, you know, across party lines, people understand that this is something we're just going to have to do and that this is the way we're going to be able to take care of our working poor in this state and make sure everyone has health insurance. Representative Jarvis Dorch. 24% of Mississippians are covered by Medicaid. Republican Governor Phil Bryant and Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves have consistently stated they remain against Medicaid expansion. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Coming up, a new survey shows Mississippians think education should be a bigger priority. Find out more. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB would like to thank Daniel, Coker, Horton, and Bell and the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter, too. Find out more. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Education funding in Mississippi needs to be a higher priority, according to a recent survey. MPB's Jasmine Ellis reports. Nathan Schrader is a political science professor at Millsaps College in Jackson. He says Mississippians across party lines agree public school funding is too low. That's according to the quarterly State of the State survey from Millsaps College and Chisholm Strategies. By an 83% margin, Democrats said that school funding is too low. But then also by roughly a 45 or 50% margin, Republicans are telling us the same thing. And independence at 60-some percent. So the school funding issue in terms of voters perceiving that school funding is too low rather than just about right or too high, cuts across party lines. Joyce Helmick, president of the Mississippi Association of Educators, says underfunding of Mississippi's public schools has had an impact on students. Many of our classrooms do not have uh, the proper teacher, the certified teacher, the um, well-prepared teacher. We're using substitutes. We're using teachers that are emergency certified. Helmick says teachers should be treated with respect, including compensation. With that honor and respect comes the proof that they are honored and respected through um, pay raises and through funding for their classrooms, as well as fully funding for uh, everything else that they need to help their students. The formula that determines Mississippi's public education system has been fully funded twice in 20 years. Jasmine Ellis, MPB News. Hear more of the results of the latest State of the State survey from Millsaps College and Chisholm Strategies on the next Mississippi edition. In other news, two education organizations in the state are collaborating on a move to increase opportunity for low-income Mississippi students. A grant by the Woodward Hines Education Foundation is opening doors for students to access Phi Theta Kappa. The Academic Honor Society for Community College Students has a chapter in every college in the U.S. and in 60 schools outside the country. It's the largest group for two-year students. Dr. Lynn Tincher-Ladner is president. She says they have a about 9,000 members in the state. Ladner and Woodward Hines President Jim McHale tell MPB's Desiree Frazier about the benefits of participation. Well, the number one benefit is scholarships. 
essentially. That's that's the hook that gets them in. And then once they're in, there's leadership, service, and there's it's literally a platform for them to stand out and get those scholarships and benefits from four-year schools. I mean, if a student gets a great score on the ACT or the SAT in high school, that's a great pathway for them. But if they go to a community college, Phi Theta Kappa is sort of that pathway to get those scholarships for the four-year, including the Ivy Leagues, the elites, every everything. And you're here to announce a program. Uh, tell us about that, please. Well, we have partnered with the Woodward Hines Foundation to provide membership for low-income students in Mississippi. One of the barriers to membership is not everyone can afford it. And um, in Mississippi, the Woodward Hines Foundation has graciously um, given us the money to pay for or subsidize membership for low-income students so that they can afford that and get these scholarship benefits. Because every single four-year college in Mississippi, public and private, offers a subsidive pretty large scholarship to PTK members. How much is the membership? The membership fee is about $80 when you add together the international to the regional to the chapter portion. And $80 sometimes is the difference between a meal or, you know, a couple of tanks of gas or a textbook. And they have to make choices. And a lot of times they can't afford that benefit. And and it's really a great program. Mr. McHale, tell us about your organization. Sure. The Woodward Hines Education Foundation is a foundation headquartered here in Jackson, Mississippi. We serve the entire state of Mississippi, and we're both a grant-making foundation but also an operating foundation, which means we operate a program that hopefully many people have heard of called Get to College. And it's a program that has um, three offices throughout the state where we provide college advising to high school students as well as starting to see a lot more adults who are interested in going back to continue their education and supporting them and figuring out what is the pathway into college, how are they going to pay for it. We offer ACT prep workshops. We help students write their resumes. But the biggest part is helping students figure out how they're going to pay for college. Why donate to provide memberships? Sure. So I've been here three years, and shortly after my arrival, um, Phi Theta Kappa was one of my first meetings. And I was visiting with Lynn, and I was just really impressed by the outcomes that Phi Theta Kappa students have. And when I asked her the number of eligible students in Mississippi who participate, I was pretty stunned by the low percentage. When what I asked, was it? It was, what, about 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent? It was 30 percent when we started the conversation and the measure this year. And they've given us a grant in the past, but we are now up to 44 percent in Mississippi. And this grant will take it even higher. That's right. And so when I heard about the um, results of this grant as well as the money it could leverage, I had a conversation with my board of directors and we made a $50,000 grant two years ago which funded 755 Theta Kappa memberships. Um, This past July, Lynn came back with a report to us that showed us that of those 750 students, 97% of them have persisted or completed and it's leveraged over $350,000 in transfer scholarships. So that's $50,000 has had a huge impact. That's what I was going to ask you. Can you talk a little bit about those scholarship dollars that these students got? Certainly. At any given year, the Phi Theta Kappa members in Mississippi, they receive about $16 million from the four-year schools at any given year. We sat down for the purposes of this grant and said, what is really happening in the exchange of money? And that's just at the sophomore level. Those students get – they're re-eligible for those scholarships at the senior level. So you're looking at really double that number every year. So when you look at what this grant's going to do, 
I figured out, so how many students are involved in the new grant? There'll be about 6,600 students mm-hmm. over the next three years that will be eligible to participate in Phi Theta Kappa because of this funding. So if you look at these 6,600 students and you, if they perform exactly the way Phi Theta Kappa members have perform, performed in the past as far as their bachelor's degree completion levels, this uh, gift of $440,000 should result in about, I'd say, 18 to $20 million for these students in scholarships over a six-year period as we study them, as they matriculate, you know. And what are you finding, uh, how students are doing as they continue their careers after the two years with these scholarships? In general, community college students, when they transfer, they they outperform the native university student. Yeah, believe it or not. And there's a study. I mean, that's true at any school. So, when a Why two- is that? Well, I mean, you, I don't know. Um, when they persist at a two-year college and they have access to maybe fewer resources than they would when they transfer, when they get to a place that has more resources, well, how do you think they're going to do? So mm-hmm. I think that when students uh, really persist through a two-year degree, they're, they're really independent students, and, and they just do extremely well. And PTK, we have a 91% completion rate across the nation for our members, and in Mississippi, it's 94%. That's great. Yeah, it's awesome. I think this grant is really going to help more low-income individuals in Mississippi kind of reach that holy grail of economic self-sufficiency. And we think the best way of getting there is through some type of post-secondary degree. Um, We really take very seriously the research that Georgetown University has done that says by 2020, 65 percent of all jobs in the United States are to require some type of post-secondary degree. Well, nationwide, we have an attainment rate of 46.8%. Nine percent in Mississippi, we have an attainment rate of thirty-seven point five percent. So we have a long way to go, and this is just one way that we feel we can help this state achieve a higher attainment rate, which is really providing the type of education that um, our citizenry needs and requires. Well, all right, Jim McHale, President and CEO of Woodward Hines Education Foundation, and Dr. Lynn Tincher Ladner, President and CEO of Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society. Thank you both for coming in and speaking with us about this. Thank you for your interest. Thank you. The grant has already gone into effect. The schools are determining eligibility for students. Coming up, a conversation with Janice S. Ellis on her book, From Liberty to Magnolia, In Search of the American Dream. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com. This is Mississippi Edition. Dr. Janice S. Ellis grew up on a cotton farm in rural Mississippi during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. She experienced racism at an early age, and as she moved on to earn a Ph.D., she encountered not only racial bias, but gender bias as well. In From Liberty to Magnolia in Search of the American Dream, Ellis recounts the barriers she faced as she tried to capture her own success. Our conversation begins with her early years in Mississippi. My dad had a cotton corn farm, but also with seven kids, he grew all of his vegetables and everything. It was a very sheltered life. Going into town was an event, really, on Saturdays because you would spend your days in the fields or going to school and your nights sitting on the porch by moonlight. And so going into the city was an experience for an 11-year-old. My mom started to take me with her 
every other Saturday when she would go into town to pay bills or get groceries or whatever. At what age did you witness or experience racism? Well, obviously I was bus past a white school to a black school in high school. But I really experienced firsthand the fear that was expressed in my household when the Klan burned a cross on my dad's uh, lawn because he was registering people to vote. And I was about 11 or 12 years old. And then probably the other incidents were when I was 13, my parents went into the city, into Magnolia, to get clothes out of the cleaners on Saturday. So my mom would have a dress to wear to church. And as they came out of the laundry, two cute little white boys spit at them. And it was so horrified, they just rushed to the car and they got into the car because I think they just did not want to cause any confrontation at all. And then I remember one day when we were driving to Magnolia, my dad got out, stopped to help one of our neighbors, who happened to have been white, get a cow back in to a broken fence. And as he was helping my neighbor, a car passed, slowed down, and a little cute, curly, blonde, white, maybe five-year-old little boy yelled, nigger. And so those were sort of the early incidences. In high school, my classmate was Herbert Lee, his father, Herbert Lee Jr., you may know of him. He was featured in the Freedom Riders documentary that was on PBS, well, maybe two or three years ago. He was killed because he sort of headed the initiative with my father. They both were NAACP members to register people to vote. So that was pretty traumatic for me. And so I'd say in my pre-adolescence and teen years is when I really became aware. You grew up during the Civil Rights era and Women's Lib era. Did you face struggles on both sides, or were they always merged? Oh, it, oh on both sides. I, I'll give you an example. I helped integrate Millsaps College in 68. I transferred from Tougaloo College there, and it was pretty blatant racism there when kids would get off the sidewalk or wouldn't sit with us in the cafeteria. I actually changed my major. I was a math major because the professor wouldn't look at me when I asked him to help me figure out why I was making false assumptions and proving an abstract theorem. It was blatant racism there, but then when I went to graduate school to work on both my master's and my doctorate, it was both because I went to graduate school six months pregnant with my first son, and I actually had professors tell me that they didn't know how I could complete my Ph.D. and be a mom as well. And one professor actually gave me an example of his wife who had to drop out in getting her master's when their first daughter was born. So I've confronted both, and there are days, quite honestly, during my professional career when I would walk in for an interview, I didn't know which weight more, you know, whether or not it was a woman walking through the door or a black walking through the door. So it depended on the situation. I would say career-wise, they both came into play, and there were times when one played more than the other. The subtitle of your book is In Search of the American Dream. Did you find it? Well, yes and no. I found it in the sense that I never gave up, and I've had some good jobs. But in those jobs, I'll give you a classic example. I worked for a large pharmaceutical company for about six or seven years, and I started as a director, 
and I negotiated a $70 million contract with one of the largest healthcare providers in the nation. And no matter what I did, I got outstanding performances every quarter, the six years I was there. And you know, I never was promoted. Someone would always come in over me that I had to train. On the one hand, I could say I did not reach the pinnacle of corporate America. I did well despite the racism and sexism that I faced. The book is called From Liberty to Magnolia in Search of the American Dream, and it's written by Janice S. Ellis. Let me say Dr. Janice S. Ellis because you did get your Ph.D. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for having me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's MPB's all-new show, AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. 